0: I am so thrilled to have Michael Lewis today. Michael is the best-selling author of books like Liar's Poker, Moneyball, and The Big Short. And his latest book may be the most important book about the Trump administration to date, The Fifth Risk. The Fifth Risk. Michael, thank you for joining me.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: First, the title, The Fifth Risk. What is The Fifth Risk?
1: I was wandering around the federal government, wondering what the consequences were of Donald Trump running it or not running it. And I was doing this because I learned that he hadn't bothered to show up for the transition, that they hadn't actually ever learned about the enterprise they were running from the Obama
0: administration. Right. And that's part of the story, which is great. Part of
1: the story is me getting these briefings that they never bothered to get. The Obama administration spent (laughs) months and months and thousands and millions of man man hours assembling these these elaborate briefings just to explain what was going down in the Department of Agriculture. And and normally what would happen is a new administration would come in, in the day after the election, all these people would roll in from that administration to get those briefings. They didn't do it. And so I was getting these briefings for the first time they were given. A standard question I would have is, given me, like, the top five things you're most worried about, the top five risks. And the first time I did this, this isn't even in, actually in the book. It was with the people in the National Security Council in the White House who had prepare these tabletop exercises to illustrate dramatize what happens something really horrible happened in the country like now these a, are obama uh, people obama people combined with the permanent civil service working together
0: okay so but, this is before uh, trump comes in
1: they've done it before trump comes in just to educate the trump
0: people about that, and the, that's the typical that's the typical transition typical thing but you're, so, you're talking so, so, to them before Trump comes in, too.
1: I'm talking to them after Trump's been there for six or eight months, and they haven't had a chance to talk to anybody from the Trump administration. But, but in any case, I'm asking them, you're worried about these catastrophic scenarios. What are your scenarios? And they if they said, well, we had... We had four of them. We had a pandemic. We had a dirty nuclear bomb set off by a terrorist. We had uh, an earthquake in the Pacific Northwest, and we had two hurricanes at once, making landfall in the United States. And I said, what would have been the fifth? And they said, well, we never really got to that. And then I got to the Department of Energy, and I was talking to a guy there who was the chief risk officer at the Department of Energy. And he had just analyzed the risks that that particular department ran. And it really is the Department of Nuclear Weapons more than the Department of Energy. But anyway, he, he sa- I said, what are your top five risks? And he said, well, Uh, someone gets elected that doesn't understand just how valuable the Iranian nuclear deal is and they dismantle it, which is what Trump did. (laughs) Uh, 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 number two was, uh, (laughs) what was North Korea actually getting, being able to deliver a nuclear warhead to our continental United States? Okay, we got three (laughs) was a loose nuke. He had, he had four of them. And, Uh and I said, well, what's your fifth? He goes, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. And I realized that what, one of the things that was going through my mind when Donald Trump took over this apparatus without any knowledge of it was was I was worried about what nobody was worrying about. It was sort of like the risk that nobody had really considered because the, the federal government itself, run. I mean, you can look at this, this enterprise as like a, a, a manager of a portfolio of risks, a ba- basket of risks. And there are lots of them. Most of them we pay no attention to because you've got competent people sort of managing them. But if nobody's paying attention to them, The likelihood is something's going to bite us and we don't know what it is. So that's what I thought of the fifth risk as. It's sort of the risk you're not paying any attention to. And there are lots of them inside the federal government.
0: 9-11 was kind of an unanticipated risk, evidently, by the Bush people. Although they maybe should have anticipated it because there were times like at a G8 conference in Genoa where they got the word that terrorists may fly planes into the summit and they put the president somewhere else so yeah and that was and Condi Rice was there for that but anyway you focus on the Commerce Agriculture and Energy departments under Trump and how they are increasing the risks of terrible catastrophes for the American people by populating these departments with inept and venal and conflicted financially conflicted people or in many cases, they're just not populating incredibly important positions.
1: That's correct. And in fact, the Trump gumbo of management, it's not just one thing going on. You may, There was a list you just offered there, and it's all true. Some cases, the jobs are just not filled. There are 4,000 jobs that Trump is supposed to fill, the management jobs in the federal government. And I think something like half of the top 700 of those jobs have not been filled. So that's part of it is just like neglect. But the second part of it is ineptitude, people rolling into jobs who have absolutely no business being there. And they're replacing
0: amazing people uh, yes. uh, who you profile who are incredibly intelligent, have incredibly uh, impressive backgrounds, who are mission-driven. These are mission-driven people. These are former astronaut uh, woman who is a scientist who becomes the head of science in the in ag right
1: in commerce in, in commerce? In the, sorry, Kathy Sullivan, who is head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is where all the uh, where the National Weather Services and all the climate data is, and, but, and, and that's but,
0: like sixty five percent of the Commerce Department is NOAA.
1: Yes, and the right. weather
0: services under that, and yes. they replace her with the CEO of AccuWeather. Yes. So is there a he, conflict there?
1: So this is another so this is another <laughs> strain. This isn't just ineptitude. Yeah, so here's one of the great themes of the Trump administration is that Trump comes in without having any interest in running this the government he's supposed to be running. And he has no mission, really. And who is going to turn up to work for that administration? Who's going to find their way? into these nooks and crannies of the federal government that are incredibly important to be managed well. It's going to be people who've got some narrow interest in it, Uh, who've got some specific, often venal interest in it. So you've got this enterprise, NOAA. In it is the National Weather Service. The National Weather Service, its mission is to protect life and property from the weather.
0: Now, wait a minute. I'm going to interrupt you here because I don't know why we need the Weather Service because we get the weather on the Weather Channel. (laughs) i mean uh, you know talk about saving money get rid of the weather service just use the weather channel yeah the the problem with that is that
1: the weather channel gets its weather from the weather service so oh oh. that's the that's the problem oh i'm sorry that was a
0: character i was called the yes yeah yeah stupid congressman
1: Stupid congressman. That's exactly what a congressman had said to Kathy Sullivan. Yeah. once she came to testify. (laughs) I read that in the book. That's wonderful. The National Weather Service does a, a bunch of things. But one of the things it does is it spends several billion dollars a year collecting the data that everybody needs if you're going to predict the weather. They have systems of weather buoys on on the oceans. They have a a radar system across the country. They have the satellites in space that are very expensive to maintain. No private company is going to do that.
0: So the taxpayers are paying for the data from NOAA and from the Weather Service, Service. And this guy comes in and he wants the data from the Weather Service not to come out, not to be available to people. Except to AccuWeather uh, and (laughs) a couple of other companies.
1: He's been on a mission for the last 20 years to essentially shut down communication between the Weather Service and the American people so that private companies can make more money, Selling weather forecasts to the American people in what one, one form or another, and, uh, and that's the, their business.
0: He sells. That's their
1: business, uh, and and of course, he sell he sells weather forecasts, and he sells you know he sells ads on his general kind of you know is it going to be sunny tomorrow or not forecast, but he also says t- sells tailored forecasts. It's like to to companies about like what's the tornado risk today to your factory, but for all of this, all these predictions. He's harvesting the data that the taxpayer has already paid for. And, and so, in fact, he's sort of asking for the taxpayer to pay for it twice. This isn't just a matter of, like, the private sector intruding where it shouldn't. It's a particular sliver of the private sector. He, even in the private sector, is something of a pariah. Other private weather companies are out, are kind of appalled that he's taken this position that the Weather Service shouldn't be communicating to the American people. Most people understand that there is this important private-public partnership uh, that goes on between the Weather Service and private companies. And part of the deal is the Weather Service does get to offer up and try to communicate.
0: And our our forecasting has improved tremendously uh, since when I was a kid. I mean, I remember the joke always used to be I shoveled. Five inches of partly cloudy off my driveway yesterday. You know, we'd always (laughs) talk about how crappy the, the weather prediction, but now we can predict the path of a hurricane. We can predict the weather tomorrow and the next day and the next day. We can do this because of all this data that's been accumulated, and this is a great thing, and it makes people safer uh, certainly in the hurricane uh, thing you talk about, uh, Tornado. I, but I, I want to move to something, which is I want to – I'm going to give you a little challenge here, okay? All right. Yeah. When I first heard that Ivanka and Jared were going to be in the White House, I was hoping that their role would be to read books like yours. Maybe they'd get uh-huh. them from friends they went to college with or something like that. And yep. then, then they would go into the Oval Office, and Ivanka would say, "Dad, we just read this book, The Fifth Risk, and there's a lot of information in it that would help you run the government better, and do things for the people who voted for you, you know, like farmers and and people in in our red areas, and yep. it would help you win reelection. So we're going to have Bob." Come in here and explain the book for two minutes. And if you like what he says, he'll stay for another eight minutes to really explain it. Is it okay, Dad? And he loves his daughter. And he says, you know, two minutes. Okay, Bob's got two minutes to convince me that I should s- sit for another eight minutes to understand the book. So... You're Bob. <laughs> okay, you're Bob. Now. I'm Bob, and
1: I got and, and I have to seduce Donald Trump into wanting to know things.
0: Yes, yeah, so you've got you've done this before. This is not. I mean, your book came out fairly recently, so they've done this before. Bob has shown up before. This is a little unfair to you because Bob's had something of a learning curve in this. But boom, you're Bob. You're in the Oval Office. Bang, you got two minutes. You're wasting time. Uh, No, I'm wasting time.
1: (laughs) I think I'd start by saying, no one knew this, but we just discovered we put Rick Perry in charge of the nuclear arsenal. I'd start with that. And I'd say, and there's loose nuclear material that terrorists could get their hands on that he's in charge of gathering up. And uh, he's also in charge of trying to figure out when the North Koreans can hit us with a nuclear bomb. Um... And I don't think Rick Perry actually knows he's in charge of any of it. I think I'd start with that. Okay. Uh, because he called for the elimination of this department that does these things. So I'd say, you know, you're asking me to do two things at once, not just explain the book but try to get inside the head of Donald Trump. And Yep. Uh, yep. Right? And it's unfair. It's so, so unfair I, to so put what, you on the what spot. I'd say, so what you'd, say, you'd have to say to him <laughs> is that Obama screwed all of this up so badly. Here's a chance for you to really look good. And You can say to the American people... This government of ours, it's no longer, you know, it's not really just the American government, it's Trump government. We can put our name on these things. We can brand the government now because nobody knows what it does. We're giving away hundreds of billions of dollars to farmers through the Department of Agriculture, and n- nobody really knows the federal government's doing it. Imagine if, if all of a sudden, you went out there and said Trump is giving away hundreds of billions of dollars. See how much people would like you if you went and marketed the federal government? That's the opportunity. That's how I'd sell them. I'd say you're a king of marketing your whole life. You've got you. You've been so good. At, at drawing attention to things and building brands. Turn that skill on the federal government. It needs it so badly, and Obama did such a good okay, job. Okay,
0: uh, your two minutes are up. I think that last part, once you started blowing smoke up his ass, yep. that's what that was now... Bob had done this before, so he would have started off. Yeah, so off. he would
1: have known to, he had to start with a smoke.
0: That's right. Yeah, I mean, you got there pretty fast. You know, I, I think you'd have to s- start with the size of his electoral victory. <laughs> and and, and new spend pictures, a lot of time new, on that.
1: Well, and also new, never-before-published pictures about how big the crowd was, showing how big the crowd was in the mall. Right? You doctor some photos. All good so you stuff. Know if, I don't well, think you
0: needed anything about the book in the first two minutes. That's probably right. Because then you get the eight minutes to explain the book.
1: This is a serious point. That the one thing Trump could has the capacity to do is draw attention to things, and the one thing the federal government needs is attention drawn to it. And so there was an opportunity. It's probably passed. There was an opportunity for him to go out and start to claim credit for everything the federal government did, and in the bargain, explain to Americans that their government is really important. But that that's not where he headed. So well,
0: you know, uh, that's that gets us to the kind of the scene setter uh, your first chapter uh, because this it tells a lot about what trump thinks about the government i did not know this but at a certain point in every presidential election cycle there's a mandatory start the transition for every campaign that has any chance of, of winning the presidency and what? When is that? Is that like in May? Is it I think, I think, of the?
1: I think that's about right. It's March, April, May. It's it's when it doesn't become a a real obligation until, but for the except for the nominees of the two major parties, where the really clock starts really ticking is right after the conventions. But this last cycle, the Cruz campaign, all the ones who are still in it in like May, March, April, May. Uh, we're, we're starting to gear up a bit.
0: So it's like uh, Bernie has to do it, and yes, okay. right. But they okay.
1: didn't—they didn't really have to do it until you know you're not obliged to do anything until after the convention. convention. So if you okay. get a nomination, so you've got you've got these months to go and hire essentially hundreds of people who know about the various corners of the of the federal government to, to in anticipation of taking it over.
0: So Chris Christie reads this in the New York Times, and he wants to do it. And he Mm -hmm. goes to Trump and says, I'd like to do this. And what does Trump say? And I want to just quote him exactly. My memory of what he said was two things he says. Don't spend
1: any money on this at all. I don't want to keep your hands off my money. Keep your hands off my fucking money is what he said. That's what I wanted you to do. But the second thing he said that was all (laughs) equally telling is when Christie tried to explain, look, this is a massive job. It's you've got two million people working for you once you become president. And it's doing all this stuff. You got to learn about it. And Trump said, Chris, you and I are so smart that if we win, we can take take an hour off after the victory party or leave the victory party an hour early and learn everything we need to know to run the thing.
0: Okay, so he says, keep your hands off my uh, my money. I would never say that word I'm. Surprised you did. But anyway, he doesn't want to spend any money on this, and, and it's because they don't think they're going to win, right? I think that's right.
1: I mean, I think that's the only explanation for how this all played out is that he was playing on the assumption he it was a brand-building exercise, and he was going to lose and complain that it was rigged and be more famous than he'd ever been before, and that was that. was that He, he did not seriously anticipate winning.
0: Okay, so... And, uh, so uh, and you cite this in, in the book, that uh, for election night, they had not written a victory speech. They had only written a concession speech. Correct. Okay, now, I would do anything to read that concession speech. You can imagine how gracious it would have been. <laughs> yeah, because
1: that, that's, how, that's, that's how he rolls, you know, I'm I, sure. Why I'm didn't sure. you
0: find that? What's wrong with you? You're <laughs> supposed to be like this, this great journalist. Why would you know? why didn't you find that? I want to see his. The, there was one written. It there exists. Yes. How it great exists. would it see, be to see the concession speech that had been written for Trump when he lost the, the Hillary? So okay, so they win. They win, right? And it's at uh, you said another scene one thirty five. And, and most of the book is not about Trump. It's not about the White House. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about these three agencies. But I love this story, and I have a question about it. Election night, 1.35 a.m., uh, the networks call Pennsylvania. He is now the president-elect. Pence is now vice president-elect. Karen Pence is there, and and the vice president wants uh, goes over to give her a kiss, and Karen Pence says, what? Uh, you got what you wanted, Mike. Leave me alone. <laughs> he pushed you okay. away.
1: So Where she, did she... you get that quote? So I was obviously talking to people who were in the room watching it. So I had two people in the room who saw that happen. And uh, Okay, so you got one person and
0: a verified by another.
1: Yes. It's interesting you're paying attention to that because... I put it in because I thought it was kind of funny, but it, uh, it is hilarious. But, bo- but, but both the people who told me
0: it uh, did not think I, it was I, hilarious. <laughs> well, no, they, they thought it
1: was kind of. They thought it was kind of. They thought it was a throwaway line. It wasn't some investigative triumph.
0: Uh, okay, it was but like one of the many
1: things that happened in the room that night.
0: Here, literally. here's the investigative. What would have been the investigative triumph? What did she mean? Did she mean you? Helped elect Donald Trump our president, or did she mean I didn't want to be second lady of the United States, or did she mean both? She mean she meant
1: you helped elect that bastard to be president. She really didn't like Trump. I was told that the break point for her, where she just where where she she was getting off the bus, was the um, <laughs> the, the, the Access Hollywood tape. That when that came out. She couldn't be in the same room with Trump, kind of thing. I think they were all at that point along for the ride, assuming that it was going to end in defeat.
0: Okay, more about how terrible Trump is, and and stuff people have heard before. What what I love about the book is that it shows how perverse the Trump administration is by showing what they're not doing and uh, what they're not funding and what they're just how mismanaged everything is and you barely see Trump. Yeah, but before we get away from the one of the great mysteries in all of this is all right
1: so he's furious with Christie for spending some money on this thing called the transition. And, and Christie spends a few million dollars and... By, he says, by, finally,
0: you go do it. Go do it. Go, okay.
1: And Christie kind of doesn't just try to keep it out of the newspaper because he knows if Trump's read about it, he's going to try to shut it down because he doesn't want to spend the money. But he goes and does it, and he does it quite competently. That independent kind of referees of this situation told me that, you know, it, actually it was a very good team of people he had assembled to go in the day after the election... And and start to figure out you know what's going on in the center of, for disease control, not, so
0: that the Center for Disease Control can fund overseas uh, detection of pandemics that are just starting and nip them in the bud. And we've now kind of, yes. and we've cut the budget for that. Trump has cut yes. the budget for that. Of course, that's one of the risks so, is a so pandemic. So here's
1: the so here's the thing that I think there's a mystery that I still have not solved, and it's this that. So he has this really good transition team ready to go, and he fires it. All those people the day or two after the election, Trump tells Bannon to fire Christie, but they fire not just Christie, but hundreds of people who Christie had put in place to go. Do, they could have. They, you see why they fired Christie? They fired Christie because Jared um, doesn't like him. G, Jared doesn't like him because Christie, when he was a prosecutor, put Jared's father in jail. Now, and they okay. They let Christie I got to stop you
0: here you got to tell us why jared's father went to jail
1: uh, tax fraud was the uh, w- were the charges but in the course of the prosecution it came out and christy i guess had a hand in in having it come out that jared's father was furious with his brother-in-law because he he suspected, I think rightly, that the brother-in-law had co- cooperated with the prosecutor and had got him in the trouble in the first place. And so his, Jared's father responds by setting up his brother-in-law with a prostitute and taping the
0: encounter and sending the tape to his sister. Um, so that but, is part of the case again. So, now, so Jared but, doesn't like Christy for putting his dad in prison. I think that's a good son. I do. Well, I think that that's a loving son. Wouldn't you just hate somebody who... Oh, no,
1: no. So here's the mystery. Let me just... Let me finish. Give me a minute. (laughs) Okay. Give me a minute, because this is the mystery, right? So (laughs) let's say that Jared said, okay, Chris Christie can run the transition because basically we're never going to win it and it doesn't matter. Then they win and Jared says, nope, this got serious. We're getting rid of that dude because I'm not going to do anything to uh, encourage his career in this administration.
0: Fine. You don't fire everybody else. You just fire Christie. Remember that none of them are are terribly smart about this right jared goes in in the book you say jared goes into the white house and is surprised that everybody's leaving he thinks yep. that most of the <laughs> i mean so you know you can't you know argue with me saying like yeah but uh that doesn't totally make sense if you know how the government works they had no idea how anything works so jared thinks if Christie's people stay there they're going to get Christie's people in the in their uh, their administration, and he doesn't want them, so he takes it over, and it's him and Pence, right? Correct. Here's the one little thing that's in the back of my mind about this whole story: mm-hmm.
1: that that why they preferred the chaos they got to the order that Christie would would have imposed, or even Christie's people would have imposed, is that the transition that Christie ran vetted out Mike Flynn and a couple of other Russian-related unsavory characters who were instantly back in the minute they got rid of everybody and all the, all the files got burned. Basically the reasons why you don't hire Mike Flynn got thrown into a garbage can. I think in the back of Trump's blizzard brain is the chaos will make it easier for me to keep the Russia story in
0: rather than have it out. So that makes sense to me. That also makes sense now. uh, Okay. So let's get into, I think the meat of the book which is that uh, the Obama administration has prepared its side of the transition. They've created these briefing books. They have uh, spent thousands and thousands of man hours putting these briefing books, saying how each department runs.
1: It Actually, let me just stop you. It isn't the Obama people. The Obama people supervise the creation of these briefings, but it's the actual civil service who are going to give these briefings. So it isn't going to be – it isn't – gonna be mostly Obama people talking to Trump people. It's it's Obama people helping the civil service prepare for the Trump the Trump people to take over their jobs. Okay. Uh, and, and but but having said that, if someone said, Al, you get to be the next Secretary of Energy and you had no idea what was going on in there, you'd probably pick up the phone and ask whoever was leaving to sit down and have lunch with you too. Uh, and course. they didn't do any of that. They didn't do that either. Okay, but, but so, th- yes. let's
0: let's go to what they did do because uh, you describe what like uh, at, at I'm sorry, the Department of Agriculture. They find their this big gorgeous room, and they they specially go out and get the most beautiful artwork in USDA in the Department of Agriculture and hang it. And they're preparing for these thirty people from the Trump transition team, to to come there and be there all day. They make lunch, right? Yeah, little finger sandwiches.
1: Finger sandwiches and ref- fridges full of soda and all the rest, they're, and parking spots set aside, all that, yes. They're waiting for this team to show up to hear what the Department of Agriculture does.
0: Okay, and, and you know, normally the, the government starts pretty early, so they're figuring at least by 9 a.m. these 30... Trump transition people are going to be there now. How many show up the first day?
1: Nobody, zero. Yeah. What did they do? Nobody shows up. What did they week, do with week. the sandwiches? So I guess that's a good question. I never found out. I assume I had to probably they probably the second day maybe they ate them there. It would be unlike them to just throw it,
0: throw it all. No, way. no, no. There's you know how many employees there are in the AG department. I I don't uh, I,
1: don't, I did I did but it's it's like
0: 120,000. It's
1: a yeah, it's a this, lot.
0: So they can get rid of the sandwiches. They just go and go to a couple of, you know, a few big offices and say hey, everybody we got some sandwiches left over.
1: So nobody shows up for weeks and weeks and then when they do show up it's one guy who shows up. He's a lobbyist for Pepsi. Uh, the first guy who <laughs> he's, that's the first guy who shows up. And Pepsi, of course, would love to be in the school lunch program, which the Department of Agriculture administers. But the sure. but and then and then he come he comes and goes. And then this very strange character who runs an operation from somewhere in the Midwest called Protect the Harvest and Protect the Harvest is, to my knowledge, the only institution devoted to animal abuse essentially set up to fight the war against people who are against animal abuse. And one of the many things the Department of Agriculture does is it supervises all animal-human disputes. Circus elephants that are abused, they had, until this man arrived, on on a website, all the lawsuits that had been brought against people who
0: had supposedly and that data energy. goes away that data goes is now away. gone okay that's gone. part of the data right. they go okay so that's an ag energy department uh, how many show up the first day nobody nobody um when they finally have a guy show up it's thomas Pyle. it's one guy yes and he's
1: a front for the fossil fuels industry it's coke enterprises and rental oil companies not not kind of thing.
0: c-o-k-e that they would go to Ag to try to compete with Pepsi to get the Coke right. in the in the school. Okay. Correct. So uh, it's, it's K O C H. So uh, now he asks for the guys <laughs> who are talking about climate change. He wants the names of the people who are studying
1: climate change right he wants a list of anybody in the Department of Energy who has attended a climate change meeting (laughs) which is which is crazy right
0: I mean it's so they want these names of people who have attended climate change meetings or conferences or seminars yeah and uh, Moniz Ernest Moniz who is the Secretary of Energy says no we're not going to do that we're still controlling this thing we're not going to do this now Ernie Moniz to me, one of the most unbelievably brilliant, competent people I've ever met. A, Did you I, have
1: some dealings with him as a, when you were a senator? Oh, yeah.
0: I was on the energy committee, and we had hearings with him all the time. He would present the budget. He always knew everything. He was incredibly articulate. I also liked him tremendously. I'd go to the Department of Energy and sit down with him and he was he had been the chairman of the physics department at MIT and Correct. and Ernie Moniz also negotiated the all the technical the complex technical pieces of the Iran uh, agreement the nuclear agreement with Iran with his counterpart his Iranian counterpart who was also had a doctorate in uh, nuclear engineering. Yes. So, and so, and, and, you and need who do there. they replace
1: Ernie Moniz with? Rick Perry. Rick Perry, former <laughs> governor of Texas, who <laughs> has called for the elimination of the
0: Department of Energy when he was a presidential candidate. In, in 2012, 2000. he uh, did the oops moment, right? The third agency of government. Yeah. I would I would do away with the education, uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Commerce commerce.
1: and let's see I can't the third one I can't sorry
0: (laughs) oops he is nominated by Trump to be the Secretary of Energy and as you said the energy handles energy department handles nukes it handles our entire nuclear arsenal he put Perry Rick Perry who didn't know that in charge of this now I met with him in my office, these are courtesy visits of nominees, and I, we had a good time. I liked him as a guy, and this was when I started my questioning with him in the, the confirmation hearing in the energy committee. Thank you so much for coming into my office. Um, did you enjoy meeting me? <laughs> I, I hope you were as much fun on that dais as you were on your couch. Well May may I rephrase that sir? Please. 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 Oh my lord. Oh my lord. Well, I think we found our Saturday night live soundbite. Now I wanted to say I think we found our oops soundbite but I was too nice did you ask him any hard
1: questions when he was in your office
0: yeah do you believe there's climate change (laughs) 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 which is very hard question for any uh, anybody appointed by this you know by Trump and they all had the same answer which is the climate is changing it's always changed and we just don't know how much uh, man is responsible for it. That's what did, they all answered, every one of them. Did, did you have
1: any talks with Perry about how comfortable he felt supervising the nuclear arsenal? No. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting how—I mean, Trump has a right to put it to, to his his management, that if he thinks Rick Perry is the guy to manage the energy department. But it's really interesting that, to me anyway, the interesting thing is that Rick Perry would say— Yeah, I want that job. Having, one, publicly embarrassed himself on the
0: subject. I think that's why Trump, by the way, nominated him, is just to embarrass him.
1: But I kept coming back to, in my mind with people like Perry. And they're scattered across the Trump administration people who are who are not just like unsuited for the job but comically unsuited for the job. Uh,
0: <laughs> it, 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 that is so coming, true. In this But, but I a keep funny coming, book. it's like the,
1: it's like it's not just they really aren't the guy for it, they're like the exact wrong person for it. What I keep coming back to is why you'd say yes when he offered you the job. If someone called me and said, Michael, you want to be Secretary of Energy? I'd say, look, I love my country too much to take the job. What we really needed is someone in that job who could go to the White House and say, look, the deal that was negotiated with the Iranians guarantees that they will not have a nuclear weapon. This is how we know. Instead, you don't have anybody who can do that. Because uh, he doesn't understand it. That's All right, so up. you've explained Rick.
0: Let me give you another example. You explain Rick Perry, but let's. Go, <laughs> well, let's you move know what in. I want to do. I want to do something uh, just to ask you: Who are the worst people that you write about in the book? So I think we'll get a lot of a lot of the people. Who would you call the least curious person that you write okay. about in the book? Wilbur Ross. Now uh, he's uh, the Secretary uh, of Commerce.
1: Commerce, it, and and it's it's because because they're kind of like they're they're species of incuriosity. And there's one that it would be, Perry would be just wholly ignorant of the thing he's coming in to run. And, and yeah, he probably doesn't, he's not asking a lot of questions about how nuclear bombs are tested and all the rest. But it's not hard to be incurious. It's a complicated subject. He's, not, he's nowhere near having the equipment to understand it. So it's almost not fair to expect him to be too curious about it. Wilbur Ross was a smart business guy who presumably dealt with numbers and data and all that stuff. Well, he was uh,
0: one of the richest men in in the world, according uh, to Forbes. <laughs> and he was one of three people Forbes
1: has identified as having lied to get onto their rich list. Well, I would uh,
0: think that you would want to be on the Forbes richest list. You're saying only three people have lied. People have lied so to the, be off it, right?
1: So I interviewed people who ran the list, and they said, that so far as they can tell— Most most rich people they lie the other way. They're hiding assets. They don't want. They actually don't want the publicity. It's the rare one who not only wants the publicity but is lying to get even more of it. Okay, so he's one of
0: three people. And who are the other two?
1: Donald Trump and uh, (laughs) and Saudi (laughs) Saudi Prince Alwaleed. How
0: do you pronounce his name? Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah. Anyway, so so that's telling
1: also about Trump. So, but Wilbur Ross. Is handed the Department of Commerce, and someone, a Bush person, comes in, and and explains to him that this isn't actually—they call it the Department of Commerce, but actually it's the Department of Data—that you're not going to be doing any business here. You're not even that important in the trade negotiations. And he this, thinks you,
0: he's the trade representative. Yes, even though we have a trade representative. I, precisely. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, you're the you're, you're the second string. You're the second string trade representative. But but. Wilbur, you have this department that is a national treasure. It it collects all of the data we need to to understand who we are as a society, where we're going as a society, what ails us as a society. That that we it's got the census, it's got the economic statistics, it's got all the weather and climate data. And they say and the, the person says, you know, that's what you really need to be paying attention to is how this data is getting is so valuable and is impartially mined in, and imperfectly used. There, there's things to do with it. And he says, I'm not interested in that kind of
0: stuff. Uh, and that just that's just amazing. And also, of course, he's being sued <laughs> over the census because they're trying they put a they're trying to put a question on it. You know, are you legal? Which is designed to scare people, even people who are legal but have become legal, because they don't want to answer it. So they'll undercount immigrants. And so they will get, and who tend to be Democrats. So Democrats will be underrepresented. Another way to suppress votes. Who's the most dishonest? Who is most dishonest? Of all the people who are in the book. Yes. um, Yeah.
1: Trump is the obviously most dishonest person who's in the book. Again, species of liar. I mean, he's like he can't open his mouth without saying something that's not true. And the best way to parse his words is to assume the opposite of what he's saying is the truth. Okay, but so, but, uh, but, but 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 apart from Trump, um, the people who were put into these jobs. Uh, um, God, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm I i, 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 I do not even know where to begin there. Okay, uh,
0: laziest, laziest,
1: Sam maybe. Clovis.
0: Oh, good. Now he he's an ag right, yep. and he replaces the chief scientist in agriculture. Is that right? Which is a very important job. It's a job. It's it's a, <laughs> it's, a it's a. So
1: you're you're you are re- running a portfolio of three billion dollars of a year of grants to to researchers. Most of the research is... To feed
0: is, the people of America and the world. So and, the science and, 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 in ag is kind of important. Kind of important and especially important now because
1: uh, there are lots of questions about how you're going to feed people in a changing climate. And most of the research, one way or another, is addressing the future of the food supply in a changing
0: So climate. who is Sam Clovis?
1: He was a right-wing radio talk show host in Iowa who supported Trump fairly early, who has absolutely no background in science. So he he
0: becomes the chief scientist in the Ag Department.
1: By the time my book came out, he'd been run out. But yes, that's who Trump appointed
0: to take this job. Who is the one who least understands his job? I think Perry. Okay, for example, he did not know, at least in 2012, he didn't know that the Energy Department uh, was in charge of all our nukes. Uh, he didn't he, he pretty clearly didn't know that until right up to the at the point where
1: he was offered the job because he then does a reversal and and says oh i've just learned all this stuff oh that's uh, right and i'm and i'm really sorry i said what i said and there's this other thing you if i st- if i dropped you into most of the jobs in government you would be curious and you would go figure things out but but i don't think actually Perry even has the capacity to figure out what's the energy department does now so as a, far as it,
0: nukes are concerned has there ever been any loose nuclear material that isn't accounted for, okay? There always is. Not
1: only is there stuff that's still floating around from the former Soviet republics, but there was an article, and it's amazing what nobody pays attention to, there was an article in the San Antonio newspaper maybe nine months ago about two guys in the energy department who were traveling with actually fissionable material, plutonium. That It wasn't enough to make a bomb, but it was bomb material. And they stayed in like a Motel 6 and they left the material in the car and the car was broken into and the stuff was stolen. That kind of thing does happen.
0: And then there was one point at which there was uh, some nuclear material sent from one place in the energy department to some other place that was not in the energy department. And uh, the decimal place uh, was moved. And so instead of like, Sending One. a
1: gram, they sell a pound. Yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so that does that kind of stuff does happen inside the energy department. It's funny how our citizenry is not all that interested. in Stuff that strikes me is inherently very interesting. So well, like, this
0: book is chock full of stuff like this. And this is why I like the book, because Trump isn't in the book much. And our experience with Trump is every day there's a new tweet that just horrifies you. And makes you feel terrible about life, but there's nothing substantial behind it. You're just this awful feeling. Here you get an awful feeling, but at least you know something about why you should feel awful. Well, that's, that's yeah. kind of why I got interested <laughs> in the subject, right?
1: Because I was wondering why why was I feeling this dread when he took over the government? And and it was a sense that oh, he's now in charge of all this stuff, and I don't know what it does.
0: And I mean, and you know also because you've been in it, don't get me wrong. You do uh, highlight the stories of incredibly great people in in the government who do great things who are no longer there <laughs> um, because they've been kicked out. Let's uh, wrap this up, I guess. Um, what do you think the American people should do about this? In other words is is there other than read your book and then respond what is the response to this knowledge from the american people to put pressure so, on congress i mean we're now got to have a yeah, democratic so, in the, House. so i
1: think so in the short term i think particularly the senate has the capacity to protect a lot of the federal government from the president the budgets that the office of the management of budget has has submitted the trump's budgets call for really stupid cuts, really stupid allocation of funds that the, that the Senate can
0: override. And I, I senators... think you have the wrong House, and let me tell you why. Uh, the Senate is controlled by Republicans, and they have not shown any spine whatsoever, even though I know this because uh, these were my colleagues, and they knew, they knew uh, who he was, and they're afraid, but they're they're more afraid of his base, who's their base, mm. and so they won't challenge him. And we've seen that. I mean, we've seen that over and over and over again. Anybody wants to be reelected, especially senators who come from states like you know, if you come from Nebraska, eighty mm-hmm. percent of Republicans, eighty-five percent of Republicans, ninety percent of Republicans. Like Trump. Love Trump. So, if they try to stop Trump from doing stuff, and, and, and it will get out, they may be primaried. And they may be primaried by, uh, with lots of money behind them, and uh, they want to keep their jobs at all costs. Yeah, well, you know, so, it's the house. It's ultra, the house. Ultra,
1: okay. Well, uh, that's true. But there are a lot of things that, they have, that has been, have been done by senators to prevent him. I mean, I don't think, for example, overriding Trump's desire to eliminate the little venture capital fund in the energy department that invests in very long-term energy ideas. I mean, they have rewritten his budgets. I think the longer-term solution is we need a presidential candidate who's not afraid to sell the federal government. And actually explain its importance and use it as a political weapon. Everybody shied away from this. I don't see why we don't have a democratic candidate who can explain what the government is doing for people. So people nod their heads and say, "Yeah, you know that that we don't that, want that." As a up.
0: senator, I would see it all the time. I go back, uh, you know, when I go to Minnesota, and I would get on uh, the Army Corps would have a boat that would go across the Mississippi and measure the silt that was coming downstream. And by measuring the silt that was flowing, they would be able to predict exactly when to dredge certain channels Mm -hmm. so that barges carrying soybeans would be able to get through. And I don't know how many farmers knew that, uh, I don't know how many Americans know that, but that was something that the government was doing, was making sure that our commerce continues. So th- this is, I mean, I'm sure Cargill knew it. This is what the government does every day. You write about it and about these, uh, these folks who do wonderful things uh, very beautifully. I don't think it's that hard to sell. And so
1: it's it's perplexing to me that no one's trying to do it. You ask me, what's the solution? I think you have to show that there's a political marketplace for loving on the government, for actually supporting this enterprise, for reconnecting the people to their government. The government has been on the receiving end of essentially a 40-year negative political campaign. And the result is that people have really distorted views about what it does and how important it is and how it does it and who the people are in it. It's not a true view. So I'd have thought that you, you could sell the true view. Well, Michael, thank you. Thanks for having me,
0: Al. Thank you, Michael. This has been a pleasure. All right. See you later. Well, thank you for listening. By the way, that uh, beautiful music is from Leo Kotke, and uh, that's a guitar. It's a guitar.